Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. I was at BAFTA having a coffee and Kevin came over from the other side of the room and put his hand on my shoulder and said, I'm sorry about Consequences. Really? Yeah. And I thought, you don't have to be sorry, Kev. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. (laughs) In our opinion. Yeah. But I think he felt that it compromised me by the lack of success. That's that's what he meant. Sean and I are very happy to have a special guest with us today, Ken Maliphant, who has uh, a long and still continuing distinguished career within the, the music and audio visual industries. Um, but we're particularly interested in the period um, from 1977 onwards, or around that time when Ken was managing director at Phonogram Records, right. Uh, in, during the time that Consequences was being, was being made. And indeed before that, um, we had a close relationship with 10CC. So uh, we're really happy to welcome you here today, Ken, and um, uh, we're looking forward to, to hearing what you, what you have to say. Welcome. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. Um, can we just start by uh, talking a little bit about your background? It's very interesting. Am I right in thinking that uh, you started uh, at what was then Philips Records as a, as a graduate trainee, is that correct? Yes, I mean, I actually started in 1970 as a commercial trainee at Philips Electronics in Croydon. Right. Uh, I worked above the television factory, writing marketing models uh, as part of my training. But I was on the books and the budget of the managing director, so hmm. I had a, a roving commission, as it were, Mm-hmm. And uh, one day I got a call from the managing director saying, listen, we have a, they have a slight problem in the record company with the launch of the music set. Yeah. Um, would you consider going up there for a year, sort it out, and then come back? Mm. This was the launch, uh, a huge investment by Philips um, against the eight-track cartridge. Mm. Right. Policy from the group said none of our repertoire goes on an eight-track cartridge, <laughs> and of course, a lot of our artists, management, you know, customers were crying out for mm. our repertoire on an eight-track cartridge. Yes. Anyway, that was it. Those were the rules. So um, I went up there to um, Stanhope House, uh, Marb Large, and that uh, was my first introduction to the music business. So I, 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 I went about doing a kind of a forensic analysis of the, the, the division within the company and the objectives, and that had never been done before. And then there was a, a lot of sort of uh, helpful accidents 
the record company in those days was dominated by the sales force. The reason for that was it had been starred of hits. Yeah. I mean, but they were fantastic at marketing the back catalogue, which consisted of Ray McVeigh's strict tempo dancing <laughs> and uh, Nana Muscuri. <laughs> Anyway, not deriding those great artists because they, so they, they, they kept the company afloat. Anyway, mm -hmm. there, was a, there was a huge emphasis on, on the sales force and they were gods and the sales director was king. And I was told he was a fearsome character and he had, didn't want anything to do with music cassettes. Mm. So John Mayer, his name was, subsequently became the sales director of CBS. And he devoted the sales force to the development of the music cassette in the UK. A huge stepping stone. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to underestimate, but in those days this was really important because physical penetration into, into retail outlets was the key, sure. given what, that we didn't have head repertoire. Yeah. What were your first releases on cassette? Do you oh, going back to the catalogue, Nana Muscuri's greatest hits, Val Dunican. Walk tall. Walk tall, walk straight and look the world right in the eye. That's what my mama told me when I was about... Um, so those were the early releases. And uh, I oversaw, if you like, uh, the, the development of the music set. And I was a member of the British Music Set um, Development Committee from all the major companies. We sat as a committee and met and talked about the generic marketing of the sound carrier. Yeah. So that was an exciting time. And uh, journalists like me, because they gave me all kinds of awards. There was a very famous award on music we called the Dooley Awards. Yeah. It was, everybody read it. Doesn't matter, the Dooley Awards was the annual Oscars in the music business, mm -hmm. written by the various journalists. And I got an award for quotes and quotes, bringing a level of marketing expertise previously unheard of in the music industry. Wow. Well, nice to you see Total rubbish, but it did, <laughs> get, did me a lot of good. Sure. Um, anyway, move on from there, then um, there, there were various changes in the organisation. The managing director left. Steve Gottlieb, who was the chairman of the group, came in as an acting managing director, came to see me and said, we, you know, we're happy with what you've done. We've got a gap in pop marketing. Would you take that over? And I said, okay. We both accepted there would be resistance because the labor managers were considered themselves real music heads. Uh, and, uh, and that was fine. But they, it needed an injection of uh, business savvy. Are you and, talking and structural about organization? The labels uh, like Mercury that still existed within the umbrella company of Phonogram, is, that what, you, is that what you mean? Philips, Fontana, right. Vertigo, um, uh, Mercury, of course, and right. then some licensed chess checker and some licensed material we had from, right. from the States. 
And your role oversaw all of those. Correct. Things. Okay. So I had, a, I had to restructure the whole division, and we launched Vertical. It didn't exist when I took over. Okay. So um, we 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 were then becoming a little bit more attractive because a wonderful thing happened, and it was called Maggie May. Wake up, Maggie. I think I got something to say. Rod signed to Mercury Records in Chicago. Okay. So we had it because it's part of the group. And we went from a company that was, um, how can I say, um, with a good solid reputation, particularly in the classical area where we were very, very strong, yeah. mm -hmm. to being not exactly hip, mm. changed overnight. Right, yeah. right. So suddenly, People who had never dreamed of knocking at our door were coming to us saying. So a, a whole string of artists uh, developed from that. And then we suddenly realized that if we were going to be <clears throat> strong in guitar bands, which was kind of accidental at the beginning, but then grew into a policy. Mm -hmm. You mean Tin Lizzy, Rush, those, those sort of people yeah. Steve Miliband, yeah. 10CC, Status Quo. that we got good at it. Can you uh, tell us ab about how 10CC came to sign? Um, obviously, uh, in recent years, Lol and Eric have, 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 have talked about the resistance they had to signing for Phonogram. They thought they were going to Virgin. And were you involved at that point? And, and oh, yeah. Can you tell us what happened? <laughs> well, the managing director was Tony Morris. Mm who had a, a, a close relationship with Harvey and Rick. Right. Rick Dixon, the co-manager of 10 Because you're aware there was this sometimes frisson between Rick handling half of the band and Harvey handling the other. Um, it was not very friendly, but they were, they were competitive. Um, Tony was very much in, in the Rick camp, I felt, although he, he had a very good relationship with with Harvey. Um, Tony Morris was the, 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 the person who, having spoken to Rick, decided to have a shot at signing 10cc, provided that they could untangle the Jonathan King scenario. Right, yeah. Because we had, as you were aware, legal problems with them. They'd signed they'd sign a five-year deal. They had a they couple of years to get, I think, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. That's correct. So they were they were actually not available. Right, yeah. Mm. But they weren't going to record for Jonathan King, and there was this impasse.
so Tony stepped in and we all went to see them and I went up to see them and uh, the Dutch came and saw them and we made our pitch and it was all, I mean from my point of view at that time I can only remember it being very amicable. I don't remember any uh, animosity whatsoever. I subsequently was told and now know mm -hmm. that they went off to the West Indies yeah. on holiday, believing <laughs> that they signed with Richard Branson. Yeah. Correct. Mm. Harvey had gazumped that with Tony Morris, mm. with the backing of Polygram International, which was a heavy hitter. Right. Mm. Even compared with Virgin, um, and the deal was done. So they, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've seen the documentaries and I've heard what they've said in print, but they never said that to me. Right. Ever. Mm. You know, so I went on did that come as a surprise to you, hearing Lowell say that he was disgusted yes, to this day? Yes, a complete surprise. Mm. Complete, total surprise, because that was never my experience. Right, because you had a good working relationship yeah, right I went, I, mean, I, yeah. I went up to Strawberry, I sat in the recording, yeah. I went on tour with them in Europe. The film of my love will travel the world forever and ever and ever. Well, yeah, Harvey kept, Andre kept complaining that your company is very good, but the German company, the French, particularly the French company, are completely useless. <laughs> and you've got to do something about it. And they, they were good at this game. So I said, well, okay, if you tell me that they're not doing what we do, which is, you know, the, the window displays, the whole nine yards, I'm going to go and find out for myself. So I went on tour with them. And while they were doing a sound check or whatever, I'd go around the shops <laughs> and Can find out exactly what our company was or wasn't doing. Did they play you I'm Not In Love as a kind of bargaining chip? We've heard that they had that in the can when they were looking for a new deal. And that, is that one of the songs you heard up at Strawberry? Can you it remember? was one of the songs I heard amongst many. Right, okay. And it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't just I'm Not In Love. Then, no, no, in Minestrone, they played Minestrone and a few other things. Right. So I didn't... It, 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 Nigel Grange and I went up. Nigel was then head of... No, decided deceased. Nigel was the head of... Uh, sort of popular music really, uh, with a particular reference to modern music and dance music. Yeah. Tremendous ears, Nigel. So Nigel came up and we listened through four or five tracks. Right. Um, some of which were nearly finished, some of which were in the formative stages. Mm. But and as I was saying earlier, I used to get the trade up with Paul Garbaccini, uh, mm. who was writing the diary. I, I became close to Kevin Law on an individual basis. Yeah. I mean, we liked each other, right. and I liked them, and our, our senses of humour, etc., were matched. Mm. Eric, I, I found an enigma, although he was always very friendly, okay. um, but always slightly enigmatic. Graham was Graham, you know, what you see is what you get. And it's the same today when I meet him. Yeah. I go backstage, to, and he's delighted to see me, and. That's fine, um, but you know, if there was a you know an emphasis, personally, it would be with Kevin Long. Uh, Do you think you had an affinity with their technological bent or their you know the, the 
the way they use technology? Is that something that fed into your background or interests at all, would you say? Yeah, I think, I, I think the, 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 I had great respect for each of the four members for, for what they did in yeah. different ways. But Long Care were an entity mm. and they were innovative. Mm -hmm. They were cutting edge and they used to push the envelope. And that's what I, that's what appealed to me because I'd, you know, with my background, I'd come from a situation professionally where I was um, marketing and promoting new technology, and new sound carriers going into new markets. Yeah. And I could see that the Kevin Law felt that as well with the music. That's yeah. right, cutting edge all the time. They were trying to push the envelope every time they stepped in the studio, really, weren't they? Yeah. So, you know, it was a double whammy, really. We got on famously as people, but and also I admire what they did. And then when the, the split came, yeah. it kind of fell naturally to Graham and Eric went with Tony Morris to Polydor. And Kevin all stayed with me at <laughs> Phonogram. Sure. Yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to hear about the, your recollections kind of about uh, after the split. Can we just briefly talk about the original soundtrack, uh, which I guess was kind of almost finished by the mm -hmm. time you, uh, you put it out as a record. What were your thoughts on your first 10cc album? Were you pleased with the results? We were all very, very excited. Um, the problem we had was nobody could pick a single. <laughs> okay. And, I mean, the first thing was a risk because the obvious one was I'm not in love. Yeah. You know? was it Even that? at that stage? So there wasn't kind of, we've read that there was a bit of resistance from the record company because of the length of the song. Did you instinctively know that that was the big one? Yeah, I think strategically what we did was we, we went with something that we thought would would showcase the, the new band on the new label with the new album. Mm -hmm. That would get a lot of airplay. We knew from the promotion department that would be the case. And we can, okay, when, when that goes, wait to watch, come, wait. So we didn't play our best shot first. I'm dancing on the white house ball. It was a risk, I said it was a risk. We yeah. were looking at the timeline and there's only two months, I think, between the releases of Minestrone and I'm Not In Love, so you must have been champing at the bit <laughs> to get the, the big one out there almost. Yeah. It was, I mean, I think and that's also whether we were interested in talking to the management and the band because we, they all bought into a strategy. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and I tried to articulate what the strategy was mm -hmm. uh, from a marketing point of view. Well, it worked. You had a number two hit in the US. Yes. Right. Out, right. Their, their first hit out of nothing, and you got the the album into the top twenty in the US. So that must have been extremely satisfying as well. It was, and I think it, you know, it, it um, quelled a lot of misgivings that certain members of the band may have had. Right. Yes, because I think they thought that Virgin had a stronger uh, footing, didn't they, in the states? Yeah, but they were, you know, and I don't want to denigrate our Chicago company, but the, one of the problems I had. Um, throughout my career was we'll sign with you but not in America <laughs> okay. 
and it put me in a very difficult position because my job was to provide worldwide repertoire for the group. Yeah. So I had a huge problem when Martin Offer and I sat there and I said, I want you for the world. And he said, you know, well, I've heard about the usual. Yeah. So I said, uh, okay, well, sign with me for the world and we'll talk about the label in America. So that's what subsequently happened. They went to Warner's in America. Uh, and uh, the, um, there was a dilemma because it put me in a very difficult, despite the fact that we earned trillions from dire straits on another label in the US, yeah. I was still felt to be a traitor and, you know, to some parts of the group. So it was a no-win situation. But I felt preserving the world as a territory was the primary objective. Sure. Okay. Um, so th we, we did do it. We did it. I did it with um, Def Leppard. Cause I signed Def Leppard when they were minors in Sheffield mm. and they didn't want to go on. But the A&R guys in Chicago heard something. Yeah. They somewhere left Chicago and took them over as management. So mm. we could do it. Yeah. And we did it a couple of times and that helped a lot in terms of... But anyway, coming back to Tennessee in those days, it was... Uh, the strategy worked and, and I think it, um, it solved a lot of problems and it, uh, both, both from the band's point of view because they, they, they kind of were catapulted from not relative obscurity but from a situation where they were, you know, less a than... A UK-only band into international... And great critical acclaim. Yeah. Yes. How do you feel original soundtrack stood up against their their, their previous album? Sheet music, in some circles, is still held up to be their best work. But did you did you feel it in context with their previous work? Yeah, I felt it was a development. Yeah. It was a musical development. It was more complex. Mm. I mean, the influence of Kevin Law, I felt, was on it. Um, so they, yeah, there was. There had been musical, you know, disagreements and conflicts, but they, they were they were to the good, yeah. because what emerged was, you know, um, an, a development. The previous albums were lovely, but more poppy. I mean, welcome Graham Goldman's songwriting influence, going back to the Hollies hits. Yeah. There, you know, the standard <clears throat> construction. It's a magic combination, that creative tension that oh, really existed is. and probably could only have existed for so long without it falling apart. And that probably leads us on to how dare you. Did you notice any change in the, in the band around the time of how dare you? Or, um, or, and how did the album in your eyes compare to the original soundtrack? Um, I'm quite I'm perfectly happy with the album. Mm. Um, from our point of view, but they, there were there were signs of misgivings within the the, the, the group structure mm -hmm. and its management, um, which is inevitable, because you know all the artists I've ever worked with were you know the best mates when you sign them, right? And after the fourth royalty check, when <laughs> when the drummer who didn't write the song's wife complains. Um, you start getting, you start getting the problems. Yeah, the, wor the worms start to kind of gnaw away, don't they? Mm. So you get, you get, 
for super egos who want to move forward in different directions, mm. suddenly the directions start to become more manifest. Mm. Were you aware of those things happening at the time or are these observations in hindsight? No, I was aware of it at the time because we'd have Harvey Lisberg come in the office and say, I want to do a solo album with Graham Goldman. Mm. It wasn't in our planning. But um, for reasons best known to Harvey and Graham, they, and politically, I wasn't going to say no. Yeah. So yeah. That, that was planned, was it? There was a solo album for, for Graham Goldman planned? Mm -hmm. uh, when was this? During the, after or before How Dare You? Do you remember? I, can't, I, can't, I don't remember exactly. Okay. It, was in that, it was during that time when there was mutterings. There were mutterings. There were mutterings between Rick and Harvey. Mutterings between Eric. Eric would always kind of make the bullets for somebody else to fire, it seemed to me. Really? Uh, yeah, well, although he was very upfront, but he, he kept a low profile. I mean, he wasn't involved in meetings and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, not, nothing dramatic, and not, nothing that one hadn't seen before, but there were, there were tensions. Involved in the uh, original work on consequences, or were you were aware? Were you aware that Kevin Lowell were doing this separate project before the before the split yeah, was announced? We, yeah, we talked about the Gizmo. Okay, uh, for a long time. Yeah, I was wondering actually whether the Gizmo uh, was ever um, did the record company have any direct involvement technologically with the Gizmo? As far as we know, it was just developed alongside. Uh, Manchester University and Kevin Lowell, they worked on it together. I just wondered whether Phonogram or some uh, aspect of the company would have been interested in marketing it, or just was that not part? Yeah, it was on the cards. I mean, we, we had those conversations. Right. Um, you know, I told them that if they needed any capital investment, we would probably step up to the plate, but they, they didn't. Right. Um, that is a worldwide, you know, jointly owned by Philips and Siemens. There right. would have been no better group to market. Right. <laughs> Technology worldwide. Yeah. And they knew that. So, but it, it never came to pass. Mm. Interesting. So what's, what's your first recollection then of, of Kevin Lowell pitching the idea of what, of what would become consequences? Do you remember any initial conversations? Yeah, it kind of grew like Topsy. I mean, they started <laughs> off that they wanted a project for the gizmo to show off its orchestral money. Manures, um, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> and they had this concept of uh, <clears throat> there being consequences. So they had, it was Kev trying to articulate this concept album, which was going to be an album. Right. Yes. Oh, like a, a single disc. Yeah. Song-based album, ah. mm -hmm. um, based to show off the gizmo. So, first of all, as far as I recollect, it was to be a showcase for the gizmo, which they they needed, mm. and, and how to do that 
who wants to do something fairly advanced musically. Um, and then they, it, it, it grew like Topsy. Suddenly, you know, Peter Cook became involved and, they, and he had his input. Do you know how that happened? Because Kev says in his book, he's a little vague, but he says something like, I'm not sure how Peter Cook got involved. It might have been the record company trying to focus the project. So do you know how Peter Cook got involved in the project? No, I don't, to be honest with you. I, uh, I, I felt it came from Harvey. My recollection was it okay. came from Harvey. Well, we will ask him in a couple of weeks. But, uh, we'll but yeah, yeah. I may be wrong, but I, all I remember was that suddenly Peter Cook was involved. Yeah. Um, it didn't come from me. Okay. It was 10 o'clock on a wet and windy April morning. The hurricane that destroyed Honolulu was moving north towards Florida. Experts forecast that the weather would remain unpredictable for the next few days. They were already quite a way into the recording, weren't they, when, when Peter Cook yes. got involved? Had you been along to the studio to listen to their progress before that, that stage? Yes, I spent a lot of time in the manor. Yeah, I right. used, to, used to live there with them. <laughs> uh, Tell us a bit about yeah, that. Please, that's that's yeah. fascinating. Oh, it's one of my fondest memories. Um, we all ate together. Peter was there Monday through Friday, and a car would take him to the Oxford station <clears throat> to go up to Hampstead. He'd come back on a Monday. Uh, but Monday through Friday, we all ate together. I, I remember Peter <laughs> was just this human consumption machine. <laughs> he had an array of, of things in front of him that yeah. he used to consume. Animal, vegetable, minerals. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, I remember going into his bedroom, presumably to get him ready to come down to do some work, and he had every single um, British newspaper delivered, which he devoured wow. before he got up. He tells some incredible funny stories about Conversations with cab drivers taking him to the. You know, one or two you may edit it out, but he would always regale us with stories. So would they be came along, we'd, we'd all be sitting, chewing the fat, talking about how the, the, the work went, and yeah. what, what was going to happen tomorrow, and genuinely excited about the whole thing. And then Peter would come on a Monday, and, and in his ear, wisty voice, say, You never believe what happens to me on Friday. <laughs> Tell us, Peter. He says, well, I'm sitting in the back of the cab and the driver looks at me and looks at me and he said, it is you, isn't it? To which I replied in the affirmative. <laughs> <laughs> and then the driver went on to say, oh, I've had them all here, you know, all here in the back. Bertrand Russell, greatest philosopher in the world, he was sitting where you are now. <laughs> and I turned and I said, here, Bert. He said, what is the meaning of life? Do you know he didn't fucking know? Superb. <laughs> 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 you can hear Derek and Clive there, can't you? Yeah. Marvellous. Um, so that, that was the kind of... I mean, I'll never forget that story. I'll never forget Peter <laughs> Bertie, Bertie, Bertie. Yeah, right, right. Get out, get out of the cap. Right. Get out of the cap. Right. And the other time i never forget, which we'll come on to later, was the launch in Amsterdam. Oh, yeah, yes, brilliant. We, we so want to hear about that. What was life like in the studio? What, what did you witness in those studio sessions at the Manor? It seemed a bit shambolic to me um, because I wasn't 
terribly used to their walking methods. It's a very nasty little place you have here. Thank you. Musicians flourish in an atmosphere of studied chaos. It's taken me years to achieve this mess. Peter was Peter, I and mean, Peter went scribble notes and write stuff down, and he'd go in front of the microphone and perform. Mm. And he's a true pro. Mm. Um, and that, I, I remember that. I mean, it was fine. But the actual constructing of the songs and the recordings were kind of it's a very organic process. Mm. Um, so I never was able to get in the beginning and say to the end. Mm. Right. I was always somewhere in the middle. It seemed to inch forward, didn't it? They seemed to, it seemed like a fantastic, luxurious way of working. As far as we're aware, Godley and Cream would compose a bit of music and then Peter Cook would riff on that and then that in turn would you know, inspire more music, which is an incredible way to work, actually. It is, but it's inordinately expensive. Right, so okay, I, yes. Uh, so I'm faced with a problem, <laughs> right. sitting in the middle of it. Yeah. Which brings us on. Which brings us on to the, the, fi the financing of consequences. Uh, is it correct that uh, uh, Kevin Lowell put in some of their own money in order to have the thing finished? Not to my recollection. Okay. Right. I'm not saying it's not true, but I don't recall. I said didn't ask for it, and I don't remember them doing that. Right. So the, the, the record company picked up the tab and financed, financed yeah. the recording of the album. And you were fully supportive of that, or, or was there pressure on you to kind of pull the plug if they spent much more? Yes, there's always pressure. <clears throat> there's always pressure on, uh, on recording costs. I mean, the recording cost budget was kind of sacrosanct. Mm. Um, right. Right. And we had, you know, we had very, every record company had bad experiences of bands coming in and mm. rehearsing in the studio at your expense. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we kind of clamped down on that. From my point of view, the, as a part of my brief, which was international, I knew that Pete Scalabis, the president of Phonogram in the Netherlands, would yeah. back me. Politically, we couldn't do anything else. We had to support these people. But there was a line. Did they go Net over the line? They were, they were, yes, they went over the line, but um, it was a miserable feast. Um, we were never going to pull the plug, but it was more than we would have wanted. Uh, we always knew it was going to be expensive. Uh, we were faced with a situation where we had to back our artists, um, come what may, really. And there was never a time I used to bring, you know, we used to bring dubs back for the A and R department to listen to. And uh, yeah. how did they go down? Well, it, it mixed. I mean, some of the younger guys in the pop department just thought Peter Cook was a complete waste of time. Quotes and quotes. We got Peter Cook rabbiting on this thing. You know? <laughs> we love that rabbiting. <laughs> and uh, and other, other guys, you know, the songs, when we had the songs, and it was wonderful. So there was some debate at that time, at that time, saying, well, we get Cook out of there and re redo it and mm. get into the music. And, and then there were other, I mean, the photographer they picked, mm. Harvey picked, mm. to, um, to photograph that cloud which he did lying in a motorway somewhere. Yeah. Literally. I mean, it cost fortunes, it cost about 10 grand. Really? If that was an original photograph then, yeah. I, I thought that was a, a, a just an, a sort of stock footage of a, of a tank no, on no, a motorway no, 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 that no, was actually no. filmed on location. Correct. Wow. With, with the cloud in situ. Correct. Yes, it was an actual photograph. 
Wow. And look, that, that photo's turned up on the cover of the new Chemical Brothers album. Have you seen that? <laughs> you didn't get a royalty for that, I presume. <laughs> get some of the 10 grand back. I'm, I'm thinking ownership of copyright. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if the Chemical Brothers are listening, watch out. Um, oh, brilliant. That's amazing. That, 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 that's stunning, the fact that that was an original photograph. Yeah, it was very much an audio-visual package, or, or could have been. Were there, were there talks during the recording of the album about how to present this live? Uh, was, was that also part of the plan, or were you just focusing on, on, the, on the record at that stage? Just on the record. There okay. was, there was no, no, no discussions about it being... Uh, although a lot, sort of a live performance being a part of the, the process. Understood. Yeah. Right, right. What did you think of the, of the music on the album? That was stunning. It was, <clears throat> I mean, to, to this day, mm. I mean, I think it stands out. It was, mm. Anything I in particular? It. Do you like the sort of instrumental passages or, or yes, the individual songs, do you think? I like the songs too, but I like the instrumental packages. What is interesting is if you, the vocal harmonies, mm. the very redolent of early 10cc yeah. songs, that's that, that, that vocal uh, mix they had. Definitely. I mean, Lol and Kev have both got such distinctive voices, haven't they? It's cool, cool, cool in the morning. And it's cool, cool, cool at night. It's cool, Yes, we think Kevin's singing, particularly on on, on consequences, is is marvellous. I mean, he, he yeah. always had a wonderful well, had a wonderful voice, but he didn't sing that much on Ten TC albums. So you know, yeah, he yes, had to lo- flower here yes, really. Lovely having him, I guess, as the main the main the singer. Main singer really, yeah, yeah, I think that was he was born to do something like that. Yeah, the sure. performances were under musicianship as well. Yeah, oh. Lowell's piano playing and his gizmo playing, all the, all the percussion instruments that Kev's. Uh, hitting in the album is huge range, wasn't there of instruments? Were you around for the the Sarah Vaughan session? No, I wasn't. You, no, no. <coughs> I don't know why, but I wasn't. Do you know how she got involved? Was that a label connection at all? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, the boys wanted Ella Fitzgerald. Yes, mm-hmm. I read that. Yeah, um, and I think there was a connection through the Mercury office to Sarah Vaughan, yeah. who may have been signed to the label at that time. Yeah. Right. Okay. Because you know these artists moved about a lot, mm. and we had a, the Memphis office was kind of the the the, the black music centre of Mercury Records. Mm-hmm. Um, that would come through that route. Sure. So I mean, you know, is that another example of them plugging into this worldwide, you know, monster that mm-hmm. could, you know, not not just bring money but marketing, promotion and uh, other artists. So they, you know, that was, I mean, I can't, I can't, maybe EMI would have been the other home that this project could have had. Whether they would have gotten done there, I'm not quite sure. Thank goodness you, um, you didn't pull the plug on it, Ken. We wouldn't be sitting here. I mean, we, we've been in love with the record for 40 years. Um, we think it's a masterpiece. Well, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. I thought it was too at the time. Um, for me, it was a bit of a hit, uh, in as much as 
um, it uh, it it wasn't um, a success, and we spent a lot of money and put a lot of resources into it. Yeah, because expectations must have been high because the audience at that time were receptive to challenging music. I believe you you were genuinely expecting it to be a big hit. I would have imagined. <clears throat> yes, we did. We 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 expected it to be commercially much to do much better commercially than it, it did. I mean, yeah. one was quite happy with many of the reviews. Right. Mm. Um, some of them were quite glowing, some were less so. But yeah. they were there were good ones, mm. weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, packaging was fantastic. Yeah, classy, uh, classy packaging. We, we classed it as a box, classical box album. Yeah. Um, with the price tag, of course. Yes, with the price tag. Right. Um, the single was didn't set the hell on fire. Mm. Also, in in, in high, with hindsight, there. The musical sort of uh, situation had changed as well. Dur even during that, the process of recording it, mm. with the advent of punk and a few other things, mm. the world just switched on its axis, didn't it? Yeah, eighteen months is a long time to be making a record, particularly in seventy six, seventy seven, and everything changed. Mm. I mean, they were incredibly unlucky with the timing. Yeah. Um, so to, please te uh, can tell us about the the launch, yeah. which I, uh, um, you were the MC at, where, where you pre presented the launch in, in the Netherlands. First off, why why did you choose the Netherlands in that particular venue? Because Photogram International wanted to launch it <coughs> as an international event. Right. Um, it was also felt that you know. People would like to go to Amsterdam. Yeah, uh, right. That, that's uh, <laughs> no, no, that's no, no, yeah. no hardship there. Yeah. Um, we picked this 18th century Lutheran chapel. Okay. Perfect. With a, a pulpit halfway up the side of the wall uh -huh. where I was ensconced. Oh, nice. <laughs> <clears throat> um, the World's Press, International Sales Force. Just a lot of clout. The PR department pulled all the stops out. Everybody was there. I mean, it was a big. Do Whether we should have done that or not, I'm not quite sure now. But anyway, as the the project manager, if you like, mm -hmm. it was felt that I should I should present it. Right. So I was subsequently described in the Dutch newspapers as a Scottish Presbyterian minister <laughs> that, that they'd brought in. <laughs> yeah, the dog yeah, collar. Yeah, I was going to say, you dog collar, you're getting too much into the part there. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, wow. And it, 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 it was like a sermon, because I can remember, I was wondering how to pitch it. Mm. And so what, were you raving about it then from the pulpit? I wasn't raving about it, but I, I pitched it at a uh, at a level where one would be describing um, a new work by Sir Michael Tippett. Yeah, a um, work of art, right? Of course. Yeah. The, the Knot Garden, for example. I mean, how would I present the Knot Garden to the gramophone? And that's the way I was thinking, mm -hmm. that I'm going to present this as a serious piece of work by serious composers. Yeah. Um, Which to, it was. Yeah. And the, I so, but and I the gizmo was in a glass case, is that right? So, in, on a velvet cushion or something, fantastic. 
I'd, I'd uh, pay a lot of good money to go back. Yeah, in was time there any, to was see there that. any photographs or even film of, of that launch? I've never seen anything. With yeah, there were photographs for sure. Right. <clears throat> there was never any film, but I can remember. I can't remember everything I said, but I remember I've been not unhappy with it, the presentation, mm. and I think it was it was suspenseful. Mm. Right. It was you know we had this location and we had this guy standing in a pulpit talking about there will be consequences and mm -hmm. whatever. I ended up saying, like it, you may like it, you may loathe it, mm. but you cannot avoid the consequences. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I remember having an effect. Yes. Um, and then there was a press conference where we got, you know, we got a lot of flack. And this is after they've sat through yeah, two was, hours. Yes, of, uh, yes. Then there was a, then the press conference. We're all sat behind a table. Peter Cook on my left. And I remember this. I don't remember the rest of the quote, but I remember this Dutch journalist saying, uh, "Yes, is this what they call a hype?" Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I was about to answer. Peter Cook put his hand over my mouth. And says, I'll field this one. <laughs> <laughs> and then spoke in the voice and character. Yeah, really? and he just destroyed the show. <laughs> Good for him. What was the flack then? You know, what was what was the feedback? What was the reaction? Did you look around the crowd, the yeah, audience the, the during was, the I mean, I mean, in retrospect, we shouldn't have subjected an audience who are hyped up to a showbiz situation with champagne and whatever, not that they'd had that then, to listen in a Lutheran chapel for two hours to this new work. Mm. It's too much. Yeah. Mm. In hindsight, I would have edited it. Yeah. And done a highlights yes. kind of presentation. Yeah, in hindsight, I would have done that. And I think it would have had a bit markedly different reception. Maybe people were nodding off. I mean, it was quite warm, but they... We were having a chuckle uh, a couple of weeks ago about that, during Sleeping Earth. We yeah. had, you were picturing, you know, Dutch journalists nodding off to that. Yeah. But I'm not surprised. It's a long time, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and do you feel then, Ken, that, that that presentation was absolutely key and that that was a sort of turning point and... Um, uh, and, it, and it helped uh, or it hindered the progress of the album, one would say. I would, it wasn't helpful. Right. It, it gave a lot of ammunition to people who were mm. preordained to have a go at it. Yeah. And they were such people. Yeah, of course. And, and we, uh, we read uh, and hear that, that Kev particularly was deeply upset, you know, from, from that point uh, about, the, about the reaction of the album. He's very defensive, although he seems to be coming around a bit and recognising what a great piece of work it is now a little. Were, were, were he and Lowell pretty de devastated? Maybe that's too strong a word. Disappointed? Strongly disappointed at the time? Yes, they were strongly disappointed. They, they put their heart and soul into this. Right. As right. You, you, you can imagine yourself. Yes, of course. Kev, Kev wears his heart and his sleeve a bit more. Right. Yeah. Lowell was just similarly affected, though. Right, right. But he didn't. He's more resilient in many ways. Mm. Um, yeah, they were. They were disappointed because they, you know, they they felt they deserved um, a bigger, wider audience. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, because it's it's coming out again, isn't it? In in a couple of weeks' time, 
have you been involved with, no, with that at all? Yeah. I wonder how it's going to be received this time. Do you think I think it, gonna... it will have swung back completely. I think now it will, because it's so unknown and so underrated, I think it, I reckon it will receive glowing reviews. Really? That's, what, that's what I feel, because it really is needs to be given its due. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure. Particularly now, with climate change, you know, it seems uh, ahead of its time, really. The story, let alone the music, yeah. it's, it's very relevant. I couldn't agree more. So, I, you know... It's I, topical. It's, Extremely so. Yeah, it hasn't dated either, has it? I mean, the, the music, it, it's unique. It doesn't sound of its time. It, to me, it doesn't even sound like a 70s record. It's just completely... It's quite, I think it's timeless. Yeah, it's I think one. such loving care was put into the recording, the quality of the recording. Yeah, uh, it was so different then. It's so different now. I, I'm, I'm with you completely. Where yeah. do you think it stands, Ken, as a as a as a piece, an artistic piece? I I think it's a it's a landmark in in modern recording. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, you're always going to get criticism, but it, when something as unique as that comes along, where you you tell a story. With the narrative, with the vocal, yeah. and the songs and the music, um, they, if there's nothing else to compare it with, you uh, makes life difficult. But I, th yeah, I th as a body of work, I think it stands up there. I'm quite proud of have been involved. Um, I'm glad I was able to help. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't, and wouldn't have changed anything, yeah. um, apart from things like the Amsterdam experience. Um, right. But I had no control over the creative process sure. and uh, couldn't and wouldn't have interfered. Yeah. What about post-consequences, um, L and, and Freeze Frame? Um, you were still uh, at the helm at Phonogram, right, in, in the late 70s. So um, can you tell us anything about how they bounced back or how they moved from consequences to the kind of gritty realism of, of L? Were you involved in that album at all? Yeah, we were involved in, <coughs> in, the, in, the, in the recording of it. I was just involved just as an executive producer. Yeah. Um, and they, they took a while to reposition themselves. Right. Um, yeah. But I think they went back to their core values in terms of song construction and musicianship. I felt that enough already after consequences let's let's go back and and also not that there were any financial pressures mm -hmm. but you know uh, let, let's have some hits again let's keep let's keep us up there in the mm. in the public uh with the public profile but there was a, still a nice healthy dollar of pushing that envelope wasn't there with the with those two hours well that's inevitable they're, they're, they're never going to take a step backwards no. right it's not in not in their nature yeah <laughs> business is business business is business business is business and were you were you impressed with with alan free spring yeah i like them yeah yeah, me too. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. You're a huge fan. Convinced yeah, they're, they're really good albums, but Consequences is just some something else. It reaches further. Level, it reaches it? further, and it and it achieves what it reaches for. In, yeah. in my mind, um, mm. it, it's unique. But, sure. Yeah. And how did you feel about the uh, about 10cc Mark II? Do you feel really? that was successful? I'm not talking financially because we know 
Deceptive Bends did, did very, very well, didn't it? Bloody Taurus did very well. What did you think artistically about what Eric and Graham uh, managed to achieve? Well, it didn't, it didn't surprise me. I mean, I, you know, <clears throat> with, with talent like that, they're always going to come up with something fresh and interesting and commercial because yeah. they're just those kind of people. And uh, it's just what they did. Um, and even now, I went to see 10CC live, the new 10CC live, blew me away. I mean, so, you know, dare I say it, the plane was at least up there yeah. with what I remember from the original band. Sure, sure. And yeah, the, the song catalogue Graham's got to choose from is fantastic. And all credit to him, he, he, he you know, he, he plays as many Kevin Lowell songs as he does Eric and Graham songs. Yeah, and they had a video of Kev. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Doing somewhere um, in Hollywood, was it? Yeah, yeah. And Kev's done the video for I'm Not In Love as well, I think, mm. hasn't he, on, on this tour? Has he? Yeah, there's a beautiful, very sort of impressionistic black and white film of a couple, sort oh. of, in, I think, in slow motion. It's really beautiful. Okay. And Kev produced that. Yeah. So were you around for the Deceptive Bends sessions? Did you pop uh, into the studio? And no, I wasn't. Then. No, I was preoccupied with other things then. Mm. Um, but <clears throat> pardon me that the um, it's, it, I want to say it's not unique it's, it's rare for a chief executive to get so closely involved with a project mm. as I was with Consequences mm. and it was just the way it happened mm. right um, and I think that you know, not that that I did anything particularly um, useful. But I did keep tabs on it, and I was able to communicate back with the company. Mm. And I was non-critical. I think that if we picked any other individual from the company, that wouldn't have been the case. Because mm. they would have come with some kind of baggage in terms of the musical direction. And that wouldn't have been helpful. Mm. So, I mean, I was, as I said, I was, it was a happy experience. Yeah. Um, the actual recording of it and putting it together. Um, less so as time went on when you know it ended up to be a flop commercially. Yeah, but, but that, I mean, that's show business. Yeah. Yeah, and that was receding into the past now. The work still stands. Um, so w we would like to say thank you for being that enabler and letting consequences come to its fruition. Uh, and couldn't, honestly, couldn't thank you. Yeah, thank couldn't you thank on, you on behalf of uh, all our listeners too. I'm sure they'll be really grateful about that. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Mm. Do you put that down to your involvement with the project? Do you think that was about the affinity that you have with Kevin Lowell on, on a personal level? Is that why you were so involved? Partly, partly, but not exclusively. Mm. Um, I was just very, very excited about the potential of the gizmo. Very excited about what I'd, the little I'd heard. Very excited about the possibility of a classically orientated box set in a right. rock and roll market. Wow. As a marketing man, wow. <laughs> you know, mm. you wanted to get into that. <laughs> I think we're at the end of the interview. So, Ken, yeah, that's, Ken, that's so, so good. Thank, thank you very you much so for joining much. us on the podcast. Thank Hello, you very Sam. much. Brilliant. Love some years. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to The Consequences podcast, produced by Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Thanks for listening.